This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio Season 2, Episode 32. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 32 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Feeney-Hatton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I am Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Feeney-Hatton. Good afternoon. Hi, Lynn. How are you doing today? I'm doing well and excited to talk with Will Richardson, Uh, a parent of two teenagers. Will has spent the last dozen years developing an international reputation as a leading thinker and writer about the intersection of social online learning networks and education. He was one of a handful of original education bloggers, and his work has appeared in numerous journals, newspapers, and magazines. Will's authored five books, including his most recent, Freedom to Learn, and From Master Teacher to Master Learner. A former public school educator of 22 years, Will is co-founder of Modern Learner Media and co-publisher of Educating Modern Learners, a site dedicated to helping educational leaders and policymakers develop new contexts for conversations around education. So welcome to the show, Will. Hey, thanks very much, you guys, for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, awesome. This is awesome. Uh, we've read uh, many of your books, uh, seen your TED Talk, and been to many of your presentations, at least in our area here in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So we're really excited to talk about some of these ideas um, that you present in your your book, Freedom to Learn. So in Freedom to Learn, you share this vision of how more freedom to learn in the classroom would engage our learners and better prepare them for success in life. So what is the ambitious and actionable question, what author Warren Berger calls a beautiful question, behind your work, Freedom to Learn? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's a beautiful, quote unquote, question, but I I think the basic question is, so how do we do that? Um, How do we bring more opportunities for kids to learn about things that they're interested in, that they have a passion for, um, that they want to go more deeply into? How do we how do we create the conditions where we can uh, allow kids to do that? And uh, in a world and at a time when we are so curriculum focused and so assessment focused on curriculum and content, um, a lot of people struggle with that. You, you see some attempts at doing things like genius hour and uh, you know twenty percent time. And my line is always, "What if? What if?" Uh, we had curriculum hour, <laughs> you know, what if, what if we just had 20% curriculum time and the rest of it was really up to the kids. So I, I think the question, I guess it's twofold, right? Why do we need to do this? Why do we need to make schools or help schools become places where kids have more agency and more ownership of their learning? And then, um, how do we do that? 
Um, what are the barriers that we have to overcome? How can we work through those? How can we really, um, you know, take that case uh, to all of our constituents and uh, um, find spaces and find ways to make those environments happen in schools? Mm-hmm. And that that why and that how is definitely connecting to a lot of the work that we're doing, particularly this year, um, in trying to uh, sort of re-engage our vision for the future. And uh, certainly, your book provides lots of ideas around that, and you know that that important why. Yeah, and I think you know I think the why actually is becoming pretty compelling now. Mm-hmm. I think that you know with the technologies that we've seen with the web and with the freedom to learn outside of school that's happening. Um, I, I think it's, it, it's becoming more of a, uh, just, a, uh, an important conversation to have. The how is still really difficult, um, because of all those kinds of legacy systems and expectations and narratives and whatever else. Those barriers that we have to overcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So in the book, you reference Frank Smith's idea of the classic theory. What is this and why do you think we need to embrace the idea in our classrooms? Well, I, I think um, Frank Smith's book, which is titled The Book of Learning and Forgetting, <laughs> is one that uh, I, I think really gets to the basic fundamental knowledge that we have about learning. And it's it's kind of hard to argue with it. I mean, certainly, um, you know, Seymour Papert says, too, that all of us have this this just lived experience when it comes to learning. And um what I find really interesting these days is that there's this huge disconnect between uh, what we believe about learning and yet what we do in classrooms. So, you know, in, in Frank Smith's book, he just gets to, I think, what is, again, the fundamental issue here. And that is that learning, as we classically have defined it, is is something that is effortless. You know, it's something that happens. We're learning all the time. It's not something that we necessarily have a curriculum for. It's not necessarily something that we have a specific teacher um, to teach us. That's not to say we don't have teachers, but um, it's it's not structured in the ways in which school attempts to structure learning. And that when we we think about learning in real life. You know, it's based on our experiences. It's it's uh, it's stuff that's never forgotten. Um, I'm always reminded of the the great quote uh, by Roger Shank, who's a an author and and uh, you know someone whose stuff I really love. Where he says, you know, just as an example of this, there's really only two things we should be teaching high school kids anyway, and that's dating and driving, right? Because those are the only two <laughs> things they really care about. And those are, but that's the classic kind of theory of learning. Mm-hmm. We care about those things. And so we want to learn about them. And it's fairly effortless. Um, and even, again, as Papert says, you know, it could get hard, but it's hard fun at that point, because mm-hmm. it's something that we're really interested in. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, Smith talks about the official theory of learning, which is the one that we've kind of constructed in schools, which says that basically, you know, you have to that it has to be hard work and, that you know, it has to be intentional and and that, you know, um, it's restricted by time and, um, you know, all that kind of stuff that we're going to grade it. It has to be assessed, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I, I think he just makes a compelling case that says the official theory of learning is is really um, not what happens. It's not how it happens, but it's a construct that we put together so that schools in their present iteration can function. Um, because it's very difficult to kind of think about school as a place where kids go 
and learn in those classic ways by experiencing things, by experimenting, by making, by, you know, all those types of things that, that we in our heart of hearts know is how learning happens. So providing more experiences and opportunities, um, whereas sometimes we're focused on really covering our curriculum. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, again, I think that, that the, the interesting conversation around schools right now, um, well, there's many interesting conversations around schools right now, obviously. But I mean, one of the most interesting to me is that whole idea of curriculum. And, you know, again, as Papert says, now that we have access to all of it, what billionth of 1% are we going to choose to teach in schools? And, and at what point do we let kids decide that, you know? Um, understanding that if kids decided, if kids have agency over it, then it is going to reflect more that classic theory of how we learn. It's going to be more about um, that long-term sticky stuff that um, that is is most of the stuff that we need to uh, live our lives successfully and and you know to participate and all that kind of stuff. Very little of which is in the curriculum, really. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's experiential. So you talk and you write a lot about this idea of learner agency and in a technology-rich networked uh, online online networks, online learning networks. So what happens when these two things merge together? Yeah, and agency's been on my mind lately because, and actually I've got a blog post tomorrow coming out because uh, Bill Gates has been talking a lot about how quote-unquote personalized technologies increase student agency, which I just think is is like funny. <laughs> it's hysterical that he says that. Um I don't think he has a real understanding of what agency means, you know, and and again, so agency in the non-classroom world uh, with access to the web means that you can pretty much learn whatever you want, whenever you want to, with whomever Mm -hmm. you want, wherever you are, you know, and so I always bring up the example of kids who play Minecraft. Um, You know, I have yet to meet a kid who plays Minecraft, who learned how to play Minecraft in a workshop or a classroom, right? Um, they just basically use their networks. They use the information that they have access to. They find their own teachers and they develop their skills and, you know, they just go in and start creating things because they find it interesting. They, they enjoy doing it. They find it challenging on some level. I mean, Minecraft, the, the beauty of Minecraft is that it was released without any instructions, you know? So there's no, there's no real manual for how to do it. Everybody's had to create the manual. Um, and I, I think that Minecraft is, is just an example of the type of learning that we can do now in, in all sorts of ways, right? That um, when we have access to all that information and to all those people, that's when we can absolutely take control over what we want to learn, when we want to learn it, et cetera. So, um, you know, I, I mentioned before that there is this growing disconnect between how we learn outside of school and inside of school. And I think that's why um, we pursue the knowledge or we pursue the learning that we either need or want um, when we want it, when we need it, um, when we're not in school. Um, but yet when we get into school, basically then it becomes, well, you have to learn this today in this classroom with these kids who are from your neighborhood with this curriculum at this pace (laughs) to be assessed in this way. And you really don't have any freedom over it. You may be, I I think it's interesting. and, And this is the Bill Gates thing now too. I think a lot of people look at 
at that whole interaction and they say, well, we'll increase student agency by allowing them to choose how they learn what we want them to learn. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's still our stuff, right? And so when you hear about all these personalized learning products, it's still our curriculum, but it's just this idea that, well, if kids want to, you know, choose to do this, do it this way or that way or whatever, that gives them more agency. Well, maybe in small doses, but that's not what freedom really is. That's not what real learner agency is. So the question for schools becomes, again, you know, um, can we make the compelling case as to why kids need to do that type of learning in schools? And I think we can, because that's the type of learning they're going to do their entire lives now. And where are they getting the experience to do that type of learning if not in school, right? They're just getting it from their peers and from their online networks, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I keep wondering how much better they could be at it if they had us alongside them in that interaction, if we were kind of modeling that and really nurturing that. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so that's, that's, uh, where that, that kind of disconnect happens. And I think that it's, um, it's a powerful moment to be a learner, uh, but it's a really challenging moment to be in school <laughs> right now <laughs> to try to, to try to kind of square all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So we in schools give our, our learners a sliver of that agency or that choice of what we're comfortable giving them, which isn't a whole lot. And then we also typically, I think, constrict their use of those um, social online learning networks, too, because we either don't understand them or we fear what might what we think might happen to them. So we still we still have a lot of I think it boils down to control. Um, We want to keep that control and we don't want to give it up to them. But we throw them this little bone and we say, we'll give you some choice uh, in some little small way. And we say it's personalized. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And but, you know, the 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 bigger issue or not the bigger issue, but another issue with that is just this this um, uh, problem we're having with the language. Right. So um, personalized, I think, in a lot of well-meaning educators' minds means that kids have more choice over what they learn. Um, but personalized in the Silicon Valley sense means that uh, we're going to create an adaptive software program that you'll go you know, sit in front of so that you can learn algebra in a way that's personalized for you because we're going to learn about you and what you need at the moment and take you through this whole path, which is going to look different from another child's path through that curriculum. Um, and, and those two things are very different, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think, we, you know, I've been, been kind of screaming for the last three, four years that what we're really talking about, I think, in these conversations is personal learning that, you know, it's, it's something that we do for ourselves. It's not something that's done to us. Um, and that whole personalized word has just been co-opted, um, by people who are making products, by people who want to sell us something. Uh, which I think is a huge problem because now the language is all messed up. And by the way, that happens a lot when you talk about, you know, education stuff. I mean, you know, let's define achievement. Let's try to figure out what that means, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and there's a whole sorts of others of those words that are just kind of conflated right now. And no one really knows what they mean. So Randy mentioned it's, you know, I think it's difficult for us to give up control in some ways. And you said, so we give up control of a little bit of choice, how you learn it, but you're still learning our stuff. When we do give up that control and we do transfer agency over um, that learning process to our students to create this different environment and culture with more freedom to learn, how does the role of the teacher change? 
Well, I think, and that's kind of what I I tried to get to in um, in the other book that just came out last year. You know, mm-hmm. from master teacher to master learner. I think that that is the shift that um, you know we used to be, and I'm generalizing here, obviously, but it used to be that the teacher was seen as the content expert in the room, and that um, the teacher was the expert at kind of meeting out the curriculum and, and doing the assessments and, you know, was the expert teacher um, with all the, the roles that are kind of encompassed in that word. I think if we're going to allow kids to do more of that learning on their own, and that includes, by the way, more self-assessment, more um, kind of discovery or creation of their own curriculum, more finding of their own teachers and classmates and things like that, that then the, the, the role of the physical teacher in the classroom becomes a, the master learner, the one who knows how to do that better than anyone else. And uh, it's a pretty big shift. I, you know, I go a lot of places. I talk to a lot of audiences. I was in Ontario last week talking to an audience. And I, every now and then I, I say something along the lines of, you know, I say, you know, and we in, and you guys understand this because you are the learning experts in your community, right? And, you know, I kind of I kind of try to make it some sound rhetorical, but of course there's dead silence when <laughs> I ask that question. And then I say it again. I say, well, let me try that again. You are the learning experts, aren't you? And then everybody kind of half-heartedly goes, yes, <laughs> you know, we are. But we're not seen as that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're really our, our – um, we see ourselves as teachers, you know, that's, that's our, we see that as our value. And I'm not saying that there is no value in that. That's not what I'm saying at all, but there's less value in that now. Um, you know, there really is. And that's just the reality of it. Uh, it, it teachers are everywhere. Um, I can find teachers, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to learn something in this iteration, right? As we do this and, and, um, I'm going to, I learn from lots of people all the time. Um, so, what I really need, what my kids really need now is someone who understands how do we make these connections? How do we vet people and in information? How do we build our own networks? How do we create our own curriculum? How do we find people um, with, uh, with whom you know, we can be inspired and create interesting things and collaborate you know, on, a, on a kind of even a global scale if that's, if that's what you want to do? Um, how do we make stuff? How do we, how are we more transparent about our learning so that people can find us? You know, another one of my, my trying to make people uncomfortable lines is when I get them to raise their right hands and I'll repeat after me. And I say, you know, I want to be found by strangers on the internet, you know, and everybody goes, Oh no, no, I don't really, but I go, yeah, you do. Or, you know, and I, I want my kids to be found by strangers on the internet. So I need a master learner in the classroom to help me do that well if I'm a kid right now, if I'm a child, you know, a student right now. That's that's an important literacy to have in this environment where there are three and a half billion potential people who I can learn with. So um, I think it's a big shift in the role of the teacher. And uh, I think it's one that, to be honest, um, is going to take some time because it's just not the way we see ourselves. Uh, we don't see ourselves as the learning experts. We see ourselves as the teaching experts. And again, nothing inherently wrong with being a teacher, but the realities of the moment and these new contexts that we have, I think, require us now to kind of redefine our role and rethink what we can bring to uh, to students in ways that are really going to be more relevant for the lives they're going to lead. So the question that goes through my head is, are we ready to become those learners? <laughs> no. 
<laughs> I mean, and again, yeah. though, but it's it, it really is, though, because we're not at a point yet where there is a um, a compelling counter narrative to traditional schooling. I think we're at a point where a lot of people are getting upset mm-hmm. and a lot of people are starting to, you know, push back. And, and a lot of people are beginning to voice their discontent with what's happening in schools. And and I think it's a, a discontent that's a little bit different from the way it's been in the past, because I think now it's not so much good school, bad school, but it's more relevant school, irrelevant school. You know what I mean? And and so that discontent is kind of taking a different shape. Um, but we're not at the point yet where we are questioning how to be most relevant in our kids' lives, right? Most of our teacher PD is still about being a better teacher in the traditional sense. Most of the products that we buy, the technologies that we buy, are about being a better teacher, not necessarily products that shift agency over learning to kids, right? So, um, we're going to have to have that conversation at some point, but the, uh, I don't think we're ready for it yet. Some schools are. Some places have moved to the point where teachers have redefined their roles um, and they see themselves differently. Um, but, you know, um, two hands and two feet, right? I can count them on, <laughs> on the digits that I have right now. And, <laughs> and uh, I don't know how long it's going to take for that number to grow significantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the th- one of the interests of ours is obviously because of the positions that we're in is leadership. So I'm also asking myself the question too, like how are leaders today ready to lead that dialogue in having all of us, including leadership as well as teachers, all educators become those learners, start to look at it through that lens. And I don't think from a leadership perspective that we're ready to even lead that yet. We don't quite understand it. And when you mentioned about products, um, we're as leaders, we're not able to in- inject our voice in that conversation and ask those questions that help to surface and uncover what the real intent, purpose of, of those products that they're trying to sell us is. I don't think the leadership really understands that. I agree. And I think, you know, as I work with some districts on long-term change, um, the first part of our work is always to simply build capacity, you know, to just really get our brains wrapped around, well, what is happening out there right now? What are the affordances of these new technologies? Um, What does the future of work look like? What is happening in higher education? Uh, I think, again, you have to understand all these different contexts in order to evaluate whether you're evaluating product or you're evaluating someone to hire or whether you're, you're evaluating your budget or whatever. And, um, you know, uh, I, you know, I kind of like to say that everybody has to be kind of living in the modern world in order to make um, these types of decisions. It's one of the reasons why my friend, you know, Bruce Dixon and I started um, EML, that newsletter in the, in the modernlearners.com site, was because we just wanted people to be better informed so they could make better decisions for mm-hmm. kids. And um, so there is a, a huge period of capacity building that needs to take place before um, leadership can have uh, relevant, sustainable conversations around change. Because if you don't take that time to do that, I think you're just going to spin your wheels and it's all going to fall backwards and you're not going to get anywhere at the end of the day. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as you were saying that too. It doesn't gain any traction. No, it doesn't. Nope. You can't move it forward if you're not all on the same page, so to speak. Mm -hmm. That's right. 
So you, you write about this idea of success and you talk about the standard metrics of success that we use in school now. So what does success look like in an environment that's more the freedom to learn environment? How do we define that success? Well, I think this is a really tough one, too, because um, we are so wedded to the measurable in this society. You know, we want data and we want stuff that we can crunch into numbers and that we can compare to last year or to classrooms or to communities, you know, whatever else. And at the end of the day, I think that that really um, it's the immeasurable stuff that is more important now. Um, Things like you know, how curious are our kids? How creative are they? Are they solving real problems? Those types of things. Um, one of my, the biggest influences in my thinking about all of this stuff is a guy by the name of Seymour Saracen. And, um, he says that, you know, the overarching goal of school, that's what he calls it. the, The overarching goal of school should be that we ensure that when kids leave us, um, they, uh, want to learn more than when they arrived, right? They want to learn more about themselves. They want to learn more about the world. They want to learn more about their peers. And um, how do you measure that? You know, I, I mean, I totally agree with them. I want my kids to be learners now. I absolutely want my kids to be voracious learners in a world where they have access to all this stuff. I mean, why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we, that be the fundamental overarching goal that we have in schools to make sure we're sending our kids out into the world as learners. I mean, you know, if, we, if it's still about kind of filling up their brains with a whole bunch of content and knowledge and uh, a lot of just in case kind of trivia, which our curriculum, much of our curriculum is made up of that stuff. <laughs> um, you know, what good is that going to do them in a world where, first of all, everything is like that is pretty much, you know, we all have the ability to look that stuff up mm-hmm. and where the half life of that knowledge is getting shorter and shorter all the time. Um, so. Sure. We want kids to be learners. We want them to learn more. But how do you measure that? Um, how do you how do you label yourself a success at that? It's much more complex. And to be honest, um, it, it it's going to require, again, a, a fundamental re- revision of the narrative and the fundamental um, revision of the expectations that parents have, that policymakers have. Right. Um, I know that, uh, you know, as a parent of a kid in high school and one who just graduated last year, um, to me, uh, or my school district expects me to define success by what I can see within the, um, parent portal on the website of what my kids' grades are, right? That, uh, there's really no need for me to know anything else but that. Um, nothing else of my work is, sh- of my kids' work is shared with me aside from what my kids tell me, which as you know, teenagers are probably not very forthcoming <laughs> in that kind of stuff. And so, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm supposed to be okay by looking at the grades and measuring my kid, my child's success in that way. Yet the grades tell me nothing about what my child is learning. Nothing. Um, you know, Tucker passed his quiz on the periodic chart of elements couple months ago with a hundred, he'd failed the test today. You know, did he learn it? Um, no, he didn't learn it. It was some, not something that he wanted to learn more about. It was not something he was interested in yet. There's a hundred in his grade report. So he must've been successful at that. And my child is a success in that particular thing. So it's really complex and it's very hard, you know, um, which is why I like places like 
you know, the, the, the big examples that everyone always talks about, High Tech High and Science Leadership Academy and places where presentation is a fundamental part of what kids do. And so um, in those communities, they've developed now cultures where the expectation is, is that you will see what kids have learned, not just find a number somewhere or a test somewhere or some kind of, you know, data point somewhere, but you will actually see it. You will experience it. And I would bet that um, most of the people, most of the parents of kids at High Tech High or SLA or, or Mount Vernon or lots of these other places, um, I don't think they care as much about the grade, to be honest with you. They're at the point now where they just care about what's it look like? What does it do? What problem was solved? And that's where we have to get to um, if we're really going to redefine success. And I think, again, that does start with uh, becoming much more transparent with parents about the work that kids are doing finding new ways to share out um, the quality of that, the, the, uh, um, the real-world application of all that stuff. But you know what the problem with that is, right, is that um, you know, I'm going to say most schools, I don't think parents, they don't want parents to know that stuff. They don't want parents uh-huh. to see that stuff. They're much happier with just, yeah, our kids are getting great SAT scores. They're passing the state exams at a high level, and they're going on to good colleges. That's success. It's just easier. And all things that don't necessarily connect back to the learning, the actual learning that's going on. It's all these these external indicators that uh, sort of distract from what is the actual learning that's occurring. And we really quite never understand that. Well, you got to change the story, you know, and and it's a really, like I said, it's a hard thing to do. Um, Again, some of the districts that I'm working with, we, we have a like a slow drip process for that with parents. We're just constantly sending parents links and pieces of information and, you know, things to read just to try to build their capacity to see success in a different way. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it, that is the problem that, that exists right now for schools is that, again, I think the world is moving and schools will move. I think eventually they're going to have to. Mm-hmm. But we're in this moment where it's right in that tra- beginning of that transition piece where we know it, but we don't really know why we know it, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and we don't have enough, for lack of a better word, we don't have enough capacity and understanding of these new contexts to have a really meaningful conversation around what it should look like. Now, again, you're getting these examples, you're getting these schools that are starting to be uh, talked about more and more movies being made about them. And, you know, I did a, a screening of most likely to succeed with a group of parents up in New York at a school. And the parents were like, we want this, you know, we want that for our kids. We want that. How do we do that type of thing? Mm-hmm. You know? So that's all that what I mean. It's all this part of, okay, so how do you build capacity on the part of parents on the part of community members on the part of policymakers so that they can, um, so they can really engage in, in a, a conversation about redefining success. Um, again, if you've got parents who are going, well, you know, we need more homework. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's probably not that they need, they need some capacity building, right? <laughs> if you know what I'm saying, we need to, we need to pour, invest some time into those parents and those conversations. Do you see the momentum being greater now than let's say it was five years ago? Like would those parents have had that same response if they saw that film five years ago? 
I, I do. I, and, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic today than I am, than I was, um, a year ago, two years ago. And it is, you know, a lot of it is this whole opt out thing, right? The whole common core and the park and smarter balance and all that stuff. I think if nothing else, it's kind of catalyzed the conversation around education, um, and what it is that we want to be doing in schools, right? What it is, how do we measure that stuff? Now, you know, obviously when you dig into it, the reason we're having this conversation is not because we want to redefine success um, as much as it is. I just don't want my, you know, whatever. I don't want the, the federal government to take over my school or I don't want my kids grades to, you know, test scores to be worse or whatever else. So the reasons maybe aren't what I'm, I would like them to be. But still, they've they've gotten people talking. And, mm-hmm. and so into that kind of space have come these videos, have come more books, have come more, um, you know, things like what you're doing here, right? Trying to engage more, a, a different conversation around, you know, well, what could it be? And, and so I do think there's more momentum, but having said that again, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's going to turn into any appreciable change at its scale in schools in the short term at all. Um, just because, uh, again, there are just so many people, not just, not just teachers and educators and parents invested in the traditional narrative, but certainly a lot of textbook companies and testing companies and all those other people who have a lot of money to spread around to policymakers to keep things the way they are. You know, um, just you know, really fast in my visit to Ontario the other day, I was talking to the board director where I was working, and and uh, she said, you know, it was really interesting because um, I guess the ministry in Ontario basically said in not so many words um we know the change is coming don't wait for us and i thought wow that's you know that's that's a step right there you know that's an interesting kind of maybe um inflection point right where where the governing body kind of says look we know we have to change but we're not sure what that is but don't wait for us to figure it out (laughs) you know just go just use your best judgment and do what you think is best for kids and so, you know, she really felt like that gave her some license. And um, uh, unfortunately, I haven't heard much of that in the States. Um, but there is a lot of that rhetoric happening in Canada. Um, the British Columbia Ed Plan, I think, is a, a fantastic um, just artifact of different thinking around learning and schooling. Alberta has been talking a lot about changing you know what significantly changing the relationship of teachers and students in classrooms and and i think ontario in the same way so yeah i think that it's growing right but it's it's a very very slow roll and um it's going to take a lot of education and a lot of capacity building i keep coming back to that term but i don't know how else to put it Mm -hmm. so you mentioned needing to educate and build capacity as some obstacles of creating this culture of increased learning agency, our understanding of success, um, parents' understanding and expectations based on their schooling experiences. What other obstacles do you see um, in in regard? I mean, as if that's not enough, right? Yeah. What other How long do you have? Do you How long do we have? <laughs> maybe, one or, maybe one or two more. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Well, it's really not funny. But I, I you know, like I said, Seymour, Seymour Saracen is someone who's really interesting to me. And he's written a lot about school reform. And he basically says that it's impossible. You can't do it. Um, and the reason you can't do it is because the 
the uh, the people who are are a part of this conversation, the various entities that are are involved in this. Um, there are so many of them, and their agendas are so diverse. Um, I think the word he uses, they are so balkanized in the way that they think about what needs to happen in schools that there's almost no chance <laughs> that all of these people, all of these kinds of entities will come together and um, kind of get on the same page and um, move toward a more progressive way of thinking about education, right? Because that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about Dewey and Montessori and, and you know, Reggio and, and all that stuff where it is about the, the child at the center, you know, and Saracen talks about this too. You know, one of the, the biggest problem we have in school right now, the biggest, maybe, maybe the biggest barrier we have right now is that we in school still expect kids to come to our curriculum instead of we moving toward their curriculum. Um, that whole mindset that says, you know, you have to come in and, and do what we tell you in, in, within these environments and these structures and everything else. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, there are just huge barriers and some of them are, are more nameable and more tangible than others. But certainly some of them are just cultural and, and nostalgia. And uh, and then you get to my other kind of favorite influence or not favorite, but biggest influence of late, which is a guy by the name of Russell Acoff, who talks about how systems, including schools, definitely schools. Um, are really uh, in the, in, in engaged in trying to do the wrong thing right. And I wrote a blog post about this a couple of weeks ago that got a, a lot of conversation, which I thought, thought was really interesting. But, you know, that, that it's this idea that, um, you know, if we were really trying to do the right thing for kids, this wouldn't be a very difficult conversation. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to get this system that most of us know probably isn't the best. None of us would create this system if we were starting from scratch. I don't think any of us would create what we have today. And yet this is what we have. So we're going to try to do this better. We're going to try to do this wrong thing right. Um, but he says, you know, what you can't forget about that is that the wronger you try to do the right thing, the wronger you get. I'm sorry, the, the, the righter you try to do the wrong thing, the wronger you get, right? <laughs> so it's like we just kind of perpetuate this, this, um, this kind of uh, practice that we know isn't the right thing for kids, but uh, we're just going to keep doing it because uh, we don't see a path to anything fundamentally different. Um, and you'll notice, too, that most of the schools that people trot out as examples of progressive learning that are highly successful were built for progressive learning. They, they weren't districts that made the shift, right? High Tech High, Science Leadership mm -hmm. Academy, a lot of those places. And I'm not begrudging any of those guys uh, the, you know, the amazing work that they're doing. They're, it's, it is amazing. But having said that, you know, and you guys know this, if you're trying to take an existing system mm -hmm. that's been around for quite a long period of time and you're trying to move it to a much more progressive place that has the child at the center. Well, it's, it's a long, um, it's a long term process. I mean, it's five, seven, 10 years um, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, you know, nothing, nothing like that is going to change overnight. So, you know, is it, is this as leaders, you know, speaking from leadership positions, is this hopeless or is this, is there something that we can do tomorrow to move this forward to to make at least some progress towards uh this vision of um you know students learner-centered 
um, learning environments. So, you know, what what can leaders, and I'll even include policymakers in there, do? What can we do to start, at least start, to create some of this? Well, I think that, uh, I think it starts with leaders. And then I think that leaders, as they find more success in this change effort, then have to advocate to policymakers. So I think that that's kind of that relationship. But look, I think what I found, what I've been finding interesting is that um, there are more and more places now that are beginning to iterate within the traditional structures, within those traditional architectures. And they're finding um, ways to pull out maybe, you know, 10% of their kids and put them into a vastly different learning environment, or at least a, you know, 50% different learning environment. Um, places like um, uh, the Mosaic School in Castle Rock, um, Colorado, right, where they took a hundred kids and basically said, you know, this is freedom to learn time. Mm-hmm. This is this is a hundred percent freedom to learn time, and we are here to help facilitate and to guide and to nurture and support. But you know, you're building your own curriculum, and look, it's a struggle. But they're on, they're getting through their second year now, and they're they're uh, um, having some some success with with the kids. I just found another one. I think actually it's in Pennsylvania, the Apollo School or the Apollo Project. I think it was, and again, it's the uh, uh, the idea that for three periods a day, kids have you know a, a certain number of kids within the traditional system. Um, they've made space in the schedule for kids to pursue these types of passion, more passion-based learning. Um, uh, and, and a number of other places that I've, I've seen and I've talked to, they're beginning to think, how can we do this maybe mm-hmm. in, a, in an iterative way, right? So we start small and then we kind of build that out. Um, so I, I do think that there is room for innovation. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we have to sit and wait for permission here. I I think that that but but I do think that it requires leadership that a has a commitment to sticking it out and to staying around. Um, You know, I think uh, one of the biggest problems that this uh, that 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 is in this conversation, at least, is that, you know, superintendents, I think the average tenure is something like three and a half years in the Mm -hmm. United States. That's not enough time. And, and, you know, as well as I do, most of the superintendents that end up replacing the former superintendents have a different agenda, have a different vision, want to go in a different direction. And so, again, it all falls back yep. to basically where it was. Um, so um, it starts with that. It starts with a long term commitment on the part of leadership. Um, it starts with trying to find places to innovate. But I think maybe sooner rather than later. But I do think that surrounding all of that is a again, a long-term deliberate plan for moving people, moving the conversation around change to a much different place coming from a much different context. And if you don't pour your um, time and treasure into that piece of it to build that foundation, um, again, I, I just think you know, it's the spinning the wheels again. It's mm-hmm. just going to come back. It's not going to, it's not going to be sustainable. Um, you know, and uh, you'll get your board members voted out and, you know, the whole deal. You know how it goes, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have uh, – I was, again, just really fast. I was working with a school in northeastern Pennsylvania and the superintendent did some really cool stuff. And she got rid of a couple people because they really weren't on board. And, and those two people ran for school board and yep. won seats and <laughs> kick, kick, kicked her out basically. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, good luck with all that. But yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, it takes time. So we'd like to wrap up the interview with um, one final question and the same question we started with. Um, what beautiful question are you thinking about now? You know, what are you working on now and what's inspiring you? 
you know, the last 10 years, I've really been driven by this question of what happens to education in a world where we can learn so much on our own, you know, and I still find that just a fascinating question. I, I wake up every day and I, I know I'm going to just my head's going to, you know, just be tweaked. My brain's going to be tweaked a, a little bit more because someone else has done something else that I'm going to find. And I'm just going to go, oh, that's kind of interesting, you know, or that's kind of innovative or, well, that's, you know, that's a different conversation to have. So, um, I, I, I'm fascinated by this moment and I appreciate certainly the struggles that, that are, um, that this moment brings to schools and to the whole change conversation. Um, but if you can step back from it from a second, you know, I, I, I don't know that there's been a more interesting time really around learning mm -hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, long, long term, I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic about a lot of things that are going on in the world, but long term, in terms of learning, I'm a real optimist. I think that that there are going to be um, continue to be more and more amazing opportunities for us to learn, uh, to connect, to create, uh, to do good work in the world. Um, I'm not so sure that I'm a long term optimist on schools, um, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, my biggest fear, and it's not just me, it's a bunch of other people who I've read and who I've talked to and stuff, but my biggest fear is that public schools especially end up being the places where kids who can't opt out end up. And mm -hmm. um, because there are, there's just going to be more and more choice moving forward. There's no doubt about that. Um, and uh, more and more of those uh, choices are going to be progressive, I think. Um, you know, right now, most of the charters and most of the Silicon Valley schools and whatever else don't really reflect I don't think a, a major change in the way we think about learning, but I think there are going to be more examples of that. I see more examples of that all the time on a small scale. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, that question of, you know, what's, what is going to happen? I think the next mm -hmm. 10 years on every level of education are going to be, continue to be really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that it's only 10 years, right? <laughs> my hope is that we figure it out in 10 years, right? <laughs> and it's not 20 years from now, we'll be asking right. the same questions right. you know, 30 years from now, but yeah certainly a lot of opportunities. And I don't want you to be, I don't want anyone to be really, you know, distraught or depressed or, or, or pessimistic at the idea of, of changing schools. Um, look, this is, this is our work right now. Right. And, you know, as my friend Gary Steger likes to say, you know, we have to do this work because mm -hmm. schools are where the kids are, you know, mm -hmm. we don't have a choice. So um, we have to just keep, keep our, our foot on the gas and, and keep trying different things and keep asking the question and keep having these conversations. And, um, hopefully at the, uh, at the center of it is what we believe is best for kids and learning. And that's the, that's the thing that drives us. And if that is the thing that drives us, then I think we're going to be okay. I would agree. That sounds like we're willing to do the work for our kids and discover, you know, what's next. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Will. Um, in the show notes, we'll link to some um, opportunities to learn more about Will's work. You can check out his blog at willrichardson.com. You can connect with him on Twitter at willrich45. Um, check out all the great resources at Educating Modern Learners, um, his book, and even uh, TED Talks will link there as well. Thanks again for joining us. And uh, I know that in our small school district of 1,600 students, uh, we're trying to make a difference. And, and really, uh, your writing and your thinking and this, this podcast certainly has put mm -hmm. um, a lot of new uh, thinking into our brains. And mine's a little aching at the moment, but just, <laughs> just trying to think of how do yeah. we, how do we um, 
tap into some of these ideas and, and how do we manage our transformation and, and change and our movement towards more of a, a freedom to learn environment uh, a little bit more effectively. So appreciate your time to share some of your thinking. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Each episode, we leave you with a, with a question to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's question What are your next steps in giving learners more agency in your classroom, school, or district? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 2, Episode 32. We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes, let us know your star rating, and consider leaving a one- or two-sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Will. to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.